Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linky. Uniting coaches at every level of the game around the love of the game. We are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. The Maryland Terrapins won the Men's College Cup on Sunday in Santa Barbara. Their head coach, Sasho Sarovsky, is on the show. The Florida State Seminoles won the Women's College Cup a week ago. Their head coach, Mark Krikorian, is on the show. Atlanta United won the MLS Cup on Saturday night. The beat reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, covering Atlanta United for four years now, Doug Robertson, is also on the show. It's a good one, and it's presented by Team Snap. Still managing your club or league on paper and spreadsheets? Go paperless with Team Snap. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, they have way fewer paper cuts. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com. To find out more. This is the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap, and I am Dean Linky. And promise kept, we will talk to every single national championship coach. We talked to the D2, D3, and NAI winners, as well as junior college in the last two weeks. Today it's Division One. We start with the women. The Florida State Seminoles at Wake Med Soccer Park in Cary, North Carolina, knock off the North Carolina Tar Heels. It's the second national championship for Mark Krikorian at Florida. Florida State to go with two other national championships that he won at Franklin Pierce, which is great because, as you know, we cover all levels of college soccer here on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. A national champion yet again, Mark Krikorian. Mark, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Dean. And it never hurts hearing national championship yet again, right, Coach? <laughs> no, that's uh, that, that's a sound that doesn't get old. Talk about this team and this run. Obviously, you made some big noise at Wake Med Soccer Park, ironically, in the ACC tournament, so you knew you had the team that had the guts and the grit to to get it done but what made this team so special coach you know Dean I think that it was a very very talented group and uh, it was uh, kind of put together with um, uh, a lot of depth and uh, we were able to overcome a number of significant injuries through the course of the season Um, as I've said a couple of times it was a bit of a disjointed uh, season with U-20 World Cup to start the season, then some call-ups through the course of the season. So, um, you know, it it made it uh, managerially uh, a little challenging, but in the end, uh, the pieces all fit together pretty well, as we hope they would. Mark, I also feel like uh, while it was a challenge, it also had to be kind of fun. I mean, at Wakeman Soccer Park, I thought the crowds over the weekend were fantastic. I'm sure you agree, a great testament for women's college soccer. But it was a home game, right, for the Tar Heels. And uh, did that motivate your team a little bit? First of all, it was a great venue. The field conditions, the folks at Wakeman just do an outstanding job. And the facility itself, the locker rooms, everything is as professional as can be. Uh, for me, I, I think that the you know the NCAA ought to take a look at potentially leaving it there and having it there on an annual basis. Uh, they've proven clearly that they're going to bring a crowd in, and certainly it was um, a crowd that favored Carolina. But it was a it was a good crowd, and uh, all of the kids deserve to play in front of a big uh, big audience. Yeah, because any way you look at it, uh, when you're playing the game and you've got a big crowd, no matter who they're cheering for, it adds a little spice, right? brought spice to the game and brings atmosphere and environment to the game and you know when you're playing for a national championship it's nice to play in front of a, a big crowd 
As you heard me mention, those four national championships, you also won a couple at Franklin Pierce. You've coached in the pro game. You've helped with U.S. soccer. But uh, you've settled in down in Tallahassee. What's made your time at Florida State so special, Coach? Well, you know, um, when I first got there, it was fairly clear that um, the philosophy of the university and their support of women's sport, women's soccer in our case, uh, was was very, very um, uh, good. And, um, you know, over the course of my time there, there have been different uh, administrations have come and gone, but uh, it's uh, been seemingly a place where uh, they sure do value uh, all of the teams and all of the sports, and uh, there's a, a common thread of um, a commitment to excellence, and uh, I, I just think that, uh, first of all, I do like the warm weather, so that helps also. <laughs> now, because you did coach professionally in the United States, and now you've got Seminoles scattered around the NWSL, just talk about what that league has meant for the game for women's college soccer. Well, it's really nice to see a lot of these players that have gone through the college game and have gone on into the NWSL and continued to develop and have an opportunity to help and impact our, our national team. And, you know, one of our kids, uh, Casey Short, came out of Florida State and uh, did a really good job. She had a chance to go and play overseas a little bit, then came into the NWSL, and her career has continued to uh, to go in the right direction. And uh, she's getting opportunities with the senior league where I'm not sure that uh, if the NWSL wasn't in existence that Casey would have that opportunity. And, you know, that's one example. There's probably an awful lot more uh, that, that are out there. Well, you've coached a lot of great players uh, during your time. One of those that I remember is Kelly Smith as well. I mean, <laughs> right, she was big time, right? Yeah, she may be the best player I've ever had the opportunity to work with. Uh, you know, fortunately, um, you know, we had three good years with her, and uh, she was a, a joy to work with. And, um certainly taught me an awful lot about uh, the, what the elite-level player sure can look like. Here with Mark Ricorian, the head coach of the Florida State Seminoles, your national champion for women's Division One. Let's go back to the College Cup. And what a job the committee did, all four number ones making the Final Four, making the College Cup. That's pretty rare, pretty amazing. They were spot on. Yeah, certainly um, all of the, uh, the number one seeds certainly held serve and got a chance to get in and had a very competitive uh, Final Four. Um, I thought all of the teams uh, represented themselves very, very well, and um, um, the competition level was extremely high. And make no mistake, playing in the ACC is like playing in a, at least an Elite Eight every week anyway, right? It sure is. I mean, the, um, we went uh, through Duke and then Virginia and then Carolina. Those three opponents are as good as any three uh, across the country, and uh, that was just in conference play. And then you get into the NCAA tournament, that wasn't easy either, of course. Now, you already mentioned about how much you like at Florida State. Uh, when you got back to Tallahassee, I'm sure the administration and everybody there was happy to see you. Did they do something special for you? You know, they did. There was a, a big celebration on Monday that the administrative group put together for our team and uh, very, very well attended, especially with such short notice. And uh, as I'm sure you can appreciate, uh, on Tuesday, uh, me and my staff were back on the road recruiting. So uh, the the opportunity to celebrate was a, a short-lived one, but uh, it was uh, really very kind. And I think our players uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, as did our staff. But now you get to think about the fun stuff like rings and, and banners, right? Uh, that's always a key part of winning a national title. It is. You know, we, we established a number of years ago when we won our first uh, – uh, ring, I think it was ACC uh, Champions uh, Ring, that um, one of the tasks uh, or one of the benefits of being the captain of the team is you get to design whatever you want on the ring. Mm. So I know that uh, as I was leaving town on Tuesday, um, captains were uh, working with 
director of ops and with uh, whichever ring company is that we're using to uh, to start to put together some sort of a design for both the uh, ACC championship as well as the uh, NCAA championship. Well, you're not one for the fanfare. You're not one to look for the praise. However, you know, with the convention coming up in Chicago, if you are able to attend, it's a little different feel when you've won the national championship. The handshakes are firmer. The high fives are more. <laughs> are you going to be in Chicago for the convention, Coach? You know, Dean, right now the, I don't have a plan to be. Um, you know, as you can probably appreciate, the amount of time that we're on the road uh, traveling and away from the family to start with is significant. So uh, there is an event uh, that's celebrating uh, Charlotte Moran, who is a dear friend of, of mine that uh, I am still looking at and, uh, and trying to consider with my wife whether it makes sense to go in for, uh, for that to support Charlotte and uh, all that she did and gave to the game. But um, honestly, I haven't had much of a chance to really look at it yet. Well, I hope you do, because I'm sure there's probably a pretty good opportunity. You'll get some hardware as well. Finally, you mentioned uh, the rigors of, you know, coaching so many games in such a you know tight time. And then, you know, just getting a chance to come up for air. I do want to mention that you're in New York. You're going to see Hamilton tonight with your wife, former history teacher. That's a pretty big deal. For, for us, it is. We, we don't get much time away uh, uh, without the children, uh, 18 and 16 years old, uh, but uh, we've stolen a weekend on the back end of a wedding here in New York, and uh, we're, we're going to go and have a great dinner here in a little while, and then uh, a nice opportunity to have some uh, some culture. Yeah, thumbs up. You will absolutely love it. I did the same for my wife on a big birthday, so enjoy it. Enjoy your national championship. Mark Recorian, the head coach of the Florida State Seminoles, your national champion, women's D1. Thanks, Coach. Always a pleasure, Dean. Thank you for all your support. Thank you, Mark. And how about Sasho Soroski, the head coach of the Maryland Terrapins? He was on a few weeks ago talking about the turnaround of the Terrapins. He got his third national championship in Santa Barbara on Sunday, knocking off the Akron Zips by a score of one to nothing. His team did not allow a single goal in the NCAA tournament. The Terps are your national champs. Sasho Saraski up next. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. This is Dean Linke, host of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, and I want to remind every one of you listening to get registered now for the 2019 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Chicago in early January. It is the place to be for education, for networking, the MLS draft, the NWSL draft, youth soccer, high school soccer, college soccer, pro soccer, coaches and administrators. You'll want to be in Chicago as part of the 2019 United Soccer Coaches Convention. Make it happen. Make it happen now. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org, click on convention, and get signed up. United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap rolling on, keeping that promise that we talked to all the national championship coaches. We did it at the D2, D3, Junior College, and NAIA level the past few weeks. Mark Krikorian on the show and Sasho Saraski. Yeah, he was just on, but he's got to come back on. He won another natty, his third national championship at Maryland. Sasha, I'm going to say it. The Maryland Terrapins are the 2018 Men's Division I National Champions. How's that 
that sound? Well, that sounds pretty incredible, Dean. I have to admit, uh, there was times this year I wasn't quite sure that uh, we'd be saying that at the end of the year, but uh, we found a way. We found a way. We got stronger and better and tougher as the year progressed. We never stopped believing that we could be the last team standing and the last team smiling, and uh, it was a heck of a journey, a heck of a ride, and I couldn't be more proud for our entire senior class, our team, our fans. uh, just, just, uh, just a great moment, you know. It's been ten years since we've we've won one. And when you win a couple like we have in a, in 2005, 2008, you think it's going to come quicker. Uh, but it, it's tough, and uh, I'm delighted to be the last team standing. I think this is one that uh, you and soccer pundits and everybody's just going to examine more and more too, because I mean, you were four, five, and one. And I got to tell you, even Steve Goff, who's been on our program a lot of times, he went to three-year games. You know this. He said this to you: three games. It was zero, zero. He told you, he said, "Sasha, I can't take it. I can't do this anymore." <laughs> and you told him, you told him, "Hang in there. We're going to get better." It's as if you knew. I don't know if you knew this, but you knew something was coming. Yeah, well, you know, I really liked my group, and I, we had a great spring. We had a good preseason. We were playing well in those games, but we there was just little things occasionally that would happen, particularly in the attack, where we 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 couldn't we couldn't get that goal to get some of these close victories that uh, that would have really enhanced our record. But I, I just I liked my locker room. I, I liked our guys, and and I, as you examine the games, you, you're sitting there going, okay, we're equal or better than any of these teams we've played, and you know we played superpowers. Uh, and just thought, okay, what can we tweak here? What can we change here? And, and so we kept tweaking, kept changing, kept adapting, and kept believing. And uh, in the end, I think we got it right. And, you know, when you consider the run we got on and you know, all of the great teams I've had at Maryland, you know, to go through the entire NCAA tournament and to play, uh, you know, most of our games on the road to not concede a goal was fantastic. Uh, and yet we also scored every game. Um, so not scoring early in the year, and now we found our way, and we scored every game. We didn't have to go to PKs. We didn't have any zero-zero ties. Um, so, so that makes me real proud that uh, we're able to get it done on both sides of the ball. Yeah, let's get deeper though on not allowing a goal, Sasho, because everybody that follows Maryland, they're all about that high press and exciting offense and in your face and everything else. And then you sit and turn around, and you're like, wait a second, Maryland did not allow a single goal in the NCAA tournament. Pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, we we, we are our pressing team. We play with a high line, and uh, to not allow a goal means that you need to have. Uh, really uh, great balance on your back line. And, uh, you know, having someone like Donovan Pines, who, you know, is, is unbelievably athletic, that can really track people and allowed us to play with a high line. But, you know, it took us a little while to really, uh, you know, find our, our, our zone of being connected and compact and being able to, to press and put pressure on teams. You know, we, 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 score a lot of goals off of our defending and uh, we weren't doing that earlier in the year and I think as you look at the NCAA tournament uh, we started scoring some goals off our defending we also started scoring some goals on set pieces but you know it was the first time that we had a five game spell where I could play with my first choice back line uh, you know during a year you know Donovan missed a game or two um, Chase uh, w- was injured on two different occasions throughout the year Chase Gasper uh, you know, Ben DeRosa and Brett St. Martin shared their right back duties. So it took us a little while to sort of get all of the pieces on the same uh, on the same page and also healthy. Um, and then the front line took some took some work. Dean, you know, we we lost some talented players in Eric Williamson and Jake Rosansky and Gordon Wild and 
uh, guys like Paul Bin and William Herb came into the fold, and it took a little while to sort of find the best pieces for them. And then also the Amar Sadic uh, really emerged as our our you know unquestionable leader of this team. This became his team, and when we pushed him a little closer to the goal and made him a true number ten, a false nine, uh, is when he started to flourish. So. Uh, it took, you know, it, it, it was a it was a, a great year in uh, coaching patience, uh, and and really challenged I think myself and the coaches to sort of figure out a couple of things. But the key is we never stop believing in our group. Well, and you've uh, been a great coach for so long, but I've told people this might be your best coaching job ever as you were dealing with those injuries and trying to find that spark. And you know, one of the key things is uh, you mentioned Ben DeRosa, but his twin brother Matt DeRosa. Hard to tell those two apart, by the way. I interviewed them both side by side, and I couldn't quite get it straight. And Matt DeRosa was big, along with Eli Cronalli as well, as part of uh, your run, right? Yeah, Matt DeRosa has uh, been a great utility player for us. You know, he's, he's always been an attacking player, but we've had to, uh, you know, make him a makeshift left back for a, a, lot, of, a lot of the last two years with Chase uh, having some injury uh, uh, concerns. So he's filled in there, but, but I think he, he sees himself further up the field and, you know, he's played, you know, those places and late in the year. He was also coming in as a number six for us as a holding midfielder. So, uh, just a, a terrific attitude, great versatility. Um, but Eli Cronalli also emerged uh, this year, and, and his partnership with, with Andrew Samuels uh, as, a, as a double pivot or double six uh, really started to come together. And I, I really felt like in the playoffs, those two both really hit their stride. I thought that was the best. Uh, both of them played together and maybe even individually all year long. So when I think about conversations I've had with Donovan Pines, Andrew Samuels, Omar Sadich, it makes sense to me when you say, I like my locker room. Those are quality kids. Yeah, they're quality kids. You know, they're, they're, they're Maryland guys through and through. Uh, they've, you know, dealt with adversity over the last three years of, you know, some early exits in the NCAA tournament, um, you know, some some expectations maybe that we all had that weren't met and they took it head on they uh they vowed to get better uh you can see all those guys just uh um you know we're always willing to get better we're always willing to get better and they never never lost faith you know they, they 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 were not in it uh for their own personal goals what they wanted most uh was a national championship and uh uh, it was it was incredible. You know, there's times we sit down with our my leadership group, and those guys are certainly part of it, and we talk about, uh, you know, what we need to fix, and and uh, they, they they just brought some great insight into uh, little things that we needed to fix, whether it was, you know, maybe tactically, maybe you know, individually, and sometimes bringing in some 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 players that needed a confidence boost. Um, and so we worked on all of those things together. It was a really a great team effort. Now, looking at the College Cup, Sasho, and watching that Indiana game and seeing how you're able to control Andrew Gutman, who I think will win the Mac Herman, knowing that Indiana did get a little bit of the game before halftime, but I really felt like the way you came back and answered the bell after halftime, that was a big-time performance by your team just to get to the final, right? Yeah, that, that was probably the, the single uh, best defensive performance of the year for our team. And I know we had a number of quality ones in the playoffs, but uh, this Indiana team was just magnificent. I mean, they're, they're strong in so many areas uh, on both sides of the ball that, you know, when we took that lead before halftime, I knew that the second half was going to be uh, – was going to take, a, you know, I call it a Herculean effort on the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, I, I mentioned to the guys, look, we're going to have to 
be at our best in box defending, which is an area that we've worked on a lot in the last third of the season. And and you you have we'll have to block shots. We'll have to you know have some great individual defending. Uh, we'll have to get tight lines. All of those things that you do, but just at, a, at another level. There was about 20 minutes spell in that second half when we were pinned in, and Indiana really showed I think their class. Um, you know, they changed the point of attack. They got in line. They, they, they got shots off. And everywhere they were, we had an extra guy. And and I think that was such an important part of what you have to do against Indiana um, because they're so quick in transitions. And, and this year, they were just so good on the ball. Um, that was the best Indiana team I've seen, you know, maybe in the last 15, 20 years. And, uh, and we met it. We met the challenge. Uh, we found a way to get through, and you know, once we beat Indiana, we were very confident uh, that this could be our moment. I know you spent some time with Damon Rensing, uh, who stayed back and watched the game. And I actually, I mentioned I spoke to Stephen Goff about your team, but I also spoke to Kale Wasserman, assistant coach, who he also stayed and watched the game, and he was amazed, Sasha, how Akron looked so good against Michigan State, and you turned Akron into a different team. I mean, by all accounts, that was all Maryland for the most part in that. National championship game, coach. Yeah, I uh, I felt like in the semifinal. I think Damon felt the same way that Michigan State uh, maybe was a little soft in their defensive pressure and gave Acker maybe a little too much ability to play with the ball. Uh, and so it was very important for us to to to, to make Akron uncomfortable um, when they had the ball. Uh, and if they were going to be comfortable, it was going to be um, you know back in square. Um, uh, and I thought we did a great job of of neutralizing. Uh, Ekpo and Zayat, and and particularly the two defensive midfielders and Sky Harder, we thought was a key in the game, and we want to make sure that he wasn't going to have a lot of joy uh, with the ball. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that we put their backs under some pressure, um, uh, and we want to make sure that we found a good balance of keeping possession uh, because both teams were very fatigued, so we didn't want to play uh, too direct in the game. But we wanted to make sure that opportunities, when, when we could uh, make their backs turn and we could get the ball into our attacking players, uh, that we needed to do that. And, of course, that led to two penalty kick calls and a free kick call and a red card uh, because our attacking players made some strong runs. And we did look forward um, in, in transition from defending to attacking and, and uh think that ends up being the key of the game. One more time, as you look back, that ridiculously brutal schedule where you and I had some laughs about your sanity, would you do it all over again the same way? <laughs> yeah, I think I would. You know, I, I knew I was going to have a, a senior-laden team and a, and a, and a tough team uh, that was ready for it, you know. And uh, But I also knew that uh, it was either going to do one of two things. It was going to harden us and make us unbreakable, or it was going to, uh, you know, maybe get us under 500 and not make the tournament. So it was a risk, it was a calculated risk on my part that I thought I, I really wanted to know what issues we had to fix in the first half of the season. Um, and I really felt like, you know, five or six games in, I knew exactly what we needed to fix. And, and you know, at that point, we figured out what the best tactical formation was for us. We figured out where the best uh, complementary players were. And then we just got, you know, uh, kids starting to believe it. We knew the results were, were ready to, to, to come, and they started to fall uh, very much into place. Crowd was really nice for the championship game, 9,000, Sasha. I know that's important to you as one of the best stewards of sporting college soccer. Oh, my God. It, it, was, it was a fantastic weekend. I mean, the, the setting, uh, it's the first time I've been to 
UCSB and Harder Stadium, and and the setting couldn't be more magnificent. I mean, the weather was beautiful. You know, the mountains to the east, the ocean to the west. Um, it was great, and and you know, I tip my hat to all of the folks at UCSB who really worked um, tirelessly to put on a great show. And I think uh, it, it's more what our student athletes deserve. Um, you know, obviously, the last four years uh, in places where we haven't had good crowds, it's been been tough uh you know sometimes to watch as a as a huge college soccer advocate um you know so this weekend was uh was particularly high and not only because we won it but because uh it, it was a great weekend for college soccer i thought the games on friday night were, were fantastic and i knew sunday was going to be tough because we had a lot of tired bodies and that's another story because i still don't think we should play within you know, less than 48 hours between the semis and the finals. Uh, but I still think it was a high-quality game on Sunday in spite of uh, the short layover. And that's a credit to Akron and to us uh, for doing that. But, uh, man, the energy in the stadium was great. Um, there was a lot of neutral fans. There was a lot of fans from Akron and obviously a lot of fans from Maryland in the final. And it, it was good. It was really, really good. And I can't wait to hopefully get back there in two years. Yeah, I thought all of that was correct. And your comments uh, on the Big Ten Network after the game, talking about not just what your team went through, but what your university went through and what this national championship meant for Maryland this year, Sasha. I thought those comments were on point. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You know, this is uh, this is what sports is. You know, you, you go through adversity, you go through difficult times, but you always must look forward. You have to learn, adapt, get better. What? How can you get stronger from the experiences uh, University of Maryland this this year, this fall, with the the death of Jordan McNair, one of our outstanding young football talents, players, um, just hit us all really, really hard. And and throughout the fall, there was a lot of stress on campus uh, in how things evolved. Um, and I'm just really happy now that uh, a lot of people connected with the University of Maryland that love this university are able to kind of. Uh, celebrate some happiness um, right before the holidays with the success of our team and the way that we represent the university. Sasha, uh, hopefully you know, I think you do, like I've never taken for granted the incredible opportunity to come into Ludwig Field and be with the crew and uh, be able to call several of your top 10 attendance records. And then I'm thinking about it, uh, you know, the Big Ten Network uh, sending me out there to cover it and knowing how much they care about college soccer. And and you're a big part of that as well. uh, is huge. You know, it makes me proud, actually, to, to do what I do and know that the network Send out. I mean, what they do presenting college soccer week in and week out is pretty impressive, I think. Yeah, hats off to Jim Delaney uh, and, and our commissioner um, and, and Chad Holly, our associate commissioner in charge of men's soccer. I mean, we had three Big Ten teams there, but the Big Ten sent people from the office there to support us. They sent a the network out there to cover us. Um, I, I, you know, that doesn't happen in, in, in any other conference that I'm aware of. And uh, you know, it just makes you feel great about the conference. And I'll tell you the other thing, Dean, that was great is, uh, you know, we were staying in the same hotel, and the number of Indiana fans and Michigan State fans that uh, that were there to support us, um, uh, you know, on on Saturday after the game, and were unbelievably classy. And on Sunday at the game, uh, it, it just warms your heart of the goodness of people and the and and the sportsmanship. Um, of of our competitors in this conference, uh, it, it was just it was great to be there, and uh, I, I thank both the Indiana and the Michigan State faithful 
uh, for the way that they uh, supported us through that and the way they welcomed us into the league. What a season. Sasha Sarosky. My mom gives me a hard time for saying that name all the time, and now I get to say it <laughs> a few more times. Head coach of the national champion, Maryland Terrapins. Sasha, well done. Thanks for the repeat appearance here on the podcast. Thank you again, Dean, for all you do for college soccer and any United Soccer coaches as well. Thank you. I made a big fan of Sasha Sarosky, big fan of college soccer. What a season it's been. That national championship game was on Sunday. Meanwhile, on Saturday, Saturday night in Atlanta, 73,000 folks, 73,000 were at Mercedes-Benz Stadium to watch the MLS Cup. Atlanta United taking it home two to nothing. Doug Robertson covers the Atlanta United for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He had a front row seat and he joins us to talk about the glorious MLS Cup record-setting attendance when we return to our United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help customers save their time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com to find out more. I'm reading directly from an article written by Doug Robertson, the Atlanta United beat writer. It was written on Monday after the parade for Atlanta United in Atlanta, December 10th, 2018. The headline reads, Atlanta United puts the pep in MLS Cup Parade and Rally. The picture is fantastic. A mob of people around the Atlanta United. And the story reads like this. In the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where Doug Robertson works. A mile from where Atlanta United was founded on a beautiful, sunny April day four and a half years ago, the franchise celebrated its most historic achievement on a cold, rainy December Monday, the MLS Cup Championship. Thousands of supporters of the Five Stripes lined a parade route through downtown Atlanta before marching to meet others at the Home Depot backyard adjacent to Mercedes-Benz Stadium for a rally. As they have done all season in shattering MLS attendance records, and as they did in powering the team to a 2-0 victory over Portland on Saturday to win the league title, the supporters expressed their love with chants, dances, flags, and scarves appropriate with temperatures in the 30s. Quote, we knew this was a great city. We knew this was a great sports city. Now we know it's a great championship City, end quote. Team owner Arthur Blank said during the first of his two times at the podium. Club president Darren Eels, sounding more like he's from Atlanta than Chelmsford, England, had the last laugh first by sarcastically asking, quote, what curse, end quote, before unexpectedly busting out an Andre 3000 reference, quote, the South got something to say, End quote. The crowd erupted when team captain Michael Parkhurst brought the silver cup onto the stage and again held it high over his head, just as he did Saturday night in front of more than 73,000. Quote, it feels good to be a champion, end quote, he said, though his language was a bit saltier and could be excused because it was his first time winning a title in his fifth attempt. Anyone involved with Atlanta United could be excused for expressing bravado on Monday. 
Not only did the club win a title in just its second year, it did so in dominating fashion. It became the first team in MLS history to score at least 70 goals in back-to-back seasons. It posted one of the great goal differences in league history for the second consecutive year. It posted three shutouts in five playoff games. Joseph Martinez became the first player in league history to be named MVP of the All-Star Game season and cup. He and Miguel Amarone are believed to be the first pair of players in more than 20 20 years to finish 1-2 in MVP voting. So when Blank said that the title is going to be the first of many, it's easier to believe that it won't be 50 years between soccer titles from the time the Chiefs won 1968 until Saturday's championship. Lastly, the supporters were consistently amazing and breaking the league's average attendance record, 53,002 they set last year, and then breaking the league's single-game attendance, 73,019 record in the Cup. They sent national journalists covering the game home astounded and writing that the environment is what MLS can one day be in more places. What a great story. And what a great story, right? As we meet the author both of that story I just read and of the story of Atlanta United, Doug Robertson, who is the Atlanta United beat writer. And Doug Robertson, I'm saying that right, Doug, right, Robertson? Yeah, you are. Thank you. He covers the Atlanta United and Major League Soccer. You can also follow Doug on Twitter at Doug Robertson, AJC for Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Facebook at Atlanta United News Now, and you can subscribe to his podcast, Southern Fried Soccer. So he knows all about the podcast world, and Doug joins me now. Doug, what a story, Atlanta United. You had a front row seat. Put it in your words. I just told everybody your words because they were fantastic. But still coming off of Saturday and the parade, pretty impressive. Yeah, it's been a fun four years now. Uh, From the time the franchise uh, was announced in April 2014 until defeating the Timbers 2-0 on Saturday at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in front of more than 73,000 people. It's been a remarkable journey, one that I think probably happened a lot faster than most people thought, but a lot of things came together from the hiring of of Darren Eels to the ownership of Arthur Blank and the managerial skills of Gerardo Martino and the team just really rarely missing on any of the players that they either signed, acquired, drafted, or or picked up off of the waiver wire. It's been a remarkable journey. Doug, we all knew it wasn't going to be, with all due respect, the Atlanta Silverbacks. We knew that. But to go from what the Atlanta Silverbacks were, where nobody was going, you couldn't find it, to 73,000, I mean, is it all Arthur Blank? Is that the difference? Is it the demographic? I mean, what is it? Because that is just two polar opposites right there. Yeah, a lot of it, there's a lot of factors in the success. It starts with Atlanta being Atlanta and the state of Georgia being a soccer city and soccer state. There's more than 85,000 registered participants in the state for the sport, and there's so many unregistered leagues. Um, The metro population is huge. Having Arthur Blank as the team's owner gave supporters and those interested in supporting the club a little bit of confidence in knowing that when he says he's going to put his money into making the team a success, they know he's going to based upon his career ownership with the Atlanta Falcons and Home Depot. People knew if I get on board with this team, I'm going to have a chance of supporting a winner or at least one that is going to do everything it can to win. And then the front office hires have worked out very well with Darren Eels 
formerly of West Bromwich Albion and Tottenham Hotspur, Carlos Bocanegra, who is really you know focused a lot on the culture of the club, having a good locker room. That's been a huge part of Atlanta United's success. They've gotten guys who want to win, who knows the importance of being a part of a team. Uh, very few of the guys that they've signed, they've unloaded simply because of, of one reason or another. Uh, and then Gerardo Martino, who's just kind of been an every man's manager. You wouldn't know from talking to him, from, from listening to him, that he's been a guy who's managed Paraguay, who's managed Argentina, who's managed Barcelona. He's a humble guy, but he's just, he was very prescient in a lot of the things he did with scouting and with the players and player development. Doug, you know the deal, though. Lamar Hunt has been involved uh, before he passed away, and his family still is involved. Bob Kraft has been involved. So it's not like NFL owners have not been involved in this league before. And, yeah, they've had some success, but this is mind-boggling success. And, yeah, you talk about those 85,000 registered, but those were around even when the Silverbacks were playing. Granted, it wasn't MLS. I mean, this is a, a cult, right? This is a cult phenomenon what's going on there, right? No, yeah, you're, you're 100% correct on that. I think maybe the biggest differences, though, were just some of the names that the names and the resumes that Atlanta United was able to secure to help the franchise. Uh, you know, Darren Eels coming from the Premier League, from a successful club in the Premier League. Carlos Bocanegra, one of the most capped players in U.S. men's national team history. And Rodriguez. Uh, formerly of the San Jose Earthquakes. She went on and she did a lot of stuff branding with Atlanta United, getting Paul McDonough, who led Orlando in its early days in its expansion franchise in Major League Soccer, getting him on board. And then you start throwing around dollar figures, you know, $60 million for a training facility, $1.6 billion for a stadium that isn't the Falcon Stadium that Atlanta United happens to play in. It is a Atlanta United Stadium on its game days, and it's an Atlanta Falcon Stadium on its game days. You put all those things together, and then you start looking at some of the players they acquired and the style of soccer they played, and it just kind of all worked in kind of a once-in-a-lifetime type of thing. The fan experience is pretty special, and one of those experiences, everybody you know keeps an eye on how much money they're spending. And I understand for Atlanta United, I don't know if they do this for the Falcons game, you can clarify, but the prices are right uh, for everything, right, as part of the fan experience? Yeah, prices are very, very inexpensive for all food. My uh, wife took four of our six kids to the championship game on Saturday, and it cost them $20 to eat. That's what the prices are. Um, it's it's amazing uh, what uh, the the leadership team uh, of Arthur Blank and, and his board, Steve Cannon and the board, have have decided with the food prices at Mercedes Benz Stadium, and it is the same for the Falcons. Uh, you don't get gouged, you don't get just hit over the head by a ten dollar hot dog like you can at some other stadiums around the country. Uh, that's not how it's done at Mercedes-Benz. Okay, so it is the same for the Falcons. I, I love you saying that because mm-hmm. my next point is in reference to the fact that uh, my wife uh, does stuff uh, around hospitality of the Super Bowl, has for 20-some years, and she was in Atlanta all week getting ready for the Super Bowl, and nobody cared about the Super Bowl or the fact that it's coming down the road. I mean, <laughs> she just said that it is dominated with talk about this soccer team. Yeah, no, it, it's easy to forget. Uh, Atlanta, you know, the, it's had the Final Four, the All-Star Game for Major League Soccer. Now it had the MLS Cup. It's going to have the Super Bowl. It's a city that knows how to host big events. But for this one week, 
all the focus, including the focus of the in most of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, was on this MLS Cup with with front page A one stories almost every day and dominating the sports front and dominating AJC.com. Uh, the city and, and, and the paper kind of got behind this and, and tried to reflect the immense interest in the team and the sport for a week. 73,000 new record, but even more impressive, I think, and you'll probably agree, the 53,000 or thereabouts uh, average attendance. Uh, describe that demographic. Who is making up those 53,000 every single game? <laughs> It's it's a whole bunch of different people. Uh, when we go for the post game sessions after the games, we're down and, and we kind of queue up outside the locker room, and a lot of people that are coming from the lower levels go right past us. And within ten seconds, you're going to see um, young Caucasians. You're going to see middle aged African Americans. You're going to see millennial Hispanics uh, of, of different genders. Uh, walking past. It has really been amazing. And Lenny United, other than the hip-hop community, really didn't do immense marketing campaigns for a whole lot of different people. They just kind of went to wherever there were groups of people that they thought might have an interest in soccer. Uh, They went to pubs on big soccer games, and Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra and, and whomever they had for players at the time would go and talk to people. They had signs it at 5Ks and 10Ks around the city, just kind of advertising at Lenny United and go and sign stuff. Um, it was just a lot of grassroots marketing that combined with the availability of soccer, you know, across platforms now that they were able to take advantage of and, and turn these people into Lenny United fans. Because as you know, a lot of people around the country have fan are fans of clubs in Europe or South America, but there's not a lot of fans of, of specific MLS teams. You know, like in Raleigh, you're not going to say, well, I'm a fan of D.C. United, mm-hmm. for example, but I am a fan of Tottenham or Liverpool or Manchester United or Chelsea. Well, it's kind of the same in Atlanta until Atlanta United came. And now all those people who may be fans of different clubs around the world are fans of Atlanta United. Now, the last line I read from your great article about that parade and, you know, encapsulating what has taken place with Atlanta, I didn't read the whole story, but I end with uh, you talking about the supporters in your line that said the supporters essentially sent national journalists covering the game home astounded and writing that the environment is what MLS can one day be in more places. And I think it's a big reason why MLS Commissioner Don Garber, you probably heard him say this, why stop at 28? I think what he's seen Atlanta is a big reason why he can say why stop at 28, right? Yeah, and it's not just Atlanta, in my opinion. I mean, you see Minnesota next year with its new stadium is already uh, sold out most of its games, from what I hear. Uh, D.C. United and Audi Field sold it didn't sell out a lot of its games, but had a far greater attendance than they had at RFK. LAFC is the same. Orlando, despite the troubles it's had on the field, continues to have strong attendance numbers there. Uh, the original franchises, Dallas, New England, uh, Columbus, uh, are the ones that have struggled. You can remember Sporting Can- or Kansas City was in big, big trouble, and they got new ownership and a new plan and rebranded, and they've bounced back. So MLS is counting on the original franchises to bounce back, but a lot of these new franchises kind of following that Atlanta United blueprint or, or – having the same interest as Minnesota has had and, and really being able to 
to grab a foothold in the community. I, you know, when they announced 28, I thought that's a little low, I think, because MLS can survive with averages of 20 to 25,000 supporters, you know, at the stadiums. And that's what a lot of the stadiums are configured. And, and it keeps costs down. And, and, you know, as you know, salaries in MLS aren't like the rest of the world. You can put together a good team, and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. A lot of people complain about it, Lenny United and the money it spends, but it's money on salaries is middle of the pack. It spends a lot on transfers in because it thinks it can recoup that losses by developing those players and selling them on and, and doubling the transfer. So it's a business model that I think more and more teams could consider and, and make money and, and be successful and get the fans in the stands because they like the talent and the product on the field. So glad we get to have Doug Robertson, the beat writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, covering Atlanta United, as he said, for four years now. And, Doug, you've also got a pretty good view of this Golden Spike ceremony for perhaps <laughs> some members of the United Soccer Coaches that don't know what that is. Can, can you explain it? Yeah, Atlanta, if people don't know it, has a long history as a railroad hub. That's kind of why it became uh, a city in the first place and how it grew, first with railroads and now with, with an airport uh, and things like that and, and, and trucking industry. But because of the railroad was the start of it, uh, Atlanta United, working with the supporters groups, kind of came up with this tradition of – the players and fans will sign this giant golden spike, a railroad spike, before games, and then the spike is carried down uh, the supporters' section, down the stairs in the supporters' section before the game, and it's dropped into like this kind of hole thing. And then a celebrity or someone comes and hammers the golden spike into the hole before the game. And then after the game, the man of the match is presented a smaller version of the golden spike as a reward. Um, so that's how the golden spike kind of happened. I, I got in a little bit of trouble at the very beginning because they kept this a secret until the very first game when they did it. And I can remember going on social media and kind of being a little bit critical of it because it didn't feel very organic to me at the time. <laughs> and uh, I had a conversation with a front office member of Atlanta United and got scolded a little bit, probably rightfully so. Uh, and since then, it's taken off and the, and the supporters love it. And Arthur Blank hammered the golden spike before the championship game, and then Gerardo Martino, they brought it out for the parade. And in what may be his last official action as Atlanta United's manager, hammered it before the parade uh, and kind of got everybody going. Yeah, and you say that in your article. Uh, I was going to read it, but you just said it. Uh, why? Why not stay and soak this in? Why is he leaving, and what are they going to do? He's never stayed anywhere very long. Uh, he likes the challenge, and now he's, he's won the MLS Cup. He can go out on top. And now he gets what may be the biggest challenge in, in world soccer, uh, reportedly the Mexico job. You know, he's, it's, it's a job, it's a roster full of talented players, but just they've never been able to find that manager that can get all those players together on the same page and, and experience the type of success that they think they deserve. Um, and if he can take Mexico to the semifinals of a World Cup or even the finals of a World Cup, he doesn't have to win it. He can, you know, he'll, he'll be a saint in Mexico. They'll make a holiday after him. They'll build statues for him. That's the challenge that, that's there. And I think, you know, he's, he's a good enough manager that he can do it. Mexico is a talented, talented team. Indeed, yeah. Um, no. I'm really excited. They're my favorite team to watch in CONCACAF, if, if not one of my favorites in the world. Yeah. Um, under Osorio. 
Yep. I'm really excited to see what Martino can do with them. Oh, man, I think a different level. With that, though, what does Atlanta United do? I mean, such a high-profile job. you got to believe they're going to go high-profile coach, right? An international coach again, I would think. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think they'll go international. You know, there's a couple of guys that are um, allegedly uh, the team has an interest in. Guillermo Barros-Coloto, Boca Juniors, uh, Melito, uh, who leads another club in Argentina. Is rumored. Uh, we've seen Sam Pauli uh, be uh, of interest to the club, uh, formerly of Argentine national team. Uh, you know, there was a tweet this weekend about Alan Pardew, and I will eat my shoes <laughs> if Atlanta United hires Alan Pardew as its next manager. Uh, I think that's him just trying to keep his name out there. Uh, but those are some of the front runners for the job. Have you seen any American names say, you know, hey, I deserve a chance? No, not yet. I, I well, I would be curious if there's an interest in Jesse Marsh. Um, kind of the same type of playing style that Atlanta United has had, but I think they want to continue the South American pipeline that they've had. So I think they're going to lean more toward a coach who has a background uh, either as, as a national player there or with some clubs or national teams from South America. A prior experience doing that. It's certainly not broke. Uh, lastly, Doug, I think you're like me. I, I love what I do. I love covering the game. Uh, you know, and for me, it's more more college soccer. But uh, you know, for you to be a journalist and cover something this special, it's got to make you sleep with a big old smile. I would think it's been different. You know, I grew up here uh, in the 1970s. I, I was tweeting this the other day. Um, I grew up playing soccer because of the Atlanta Chiefs. Um, I um, I have loved the sport since I was a kid, since the only soccer you can see was soccer made in Germany or, or maybe ABC's Wide World of Sports. Um, and I went to the Generals games. I, you know, I remember one night for an indoor soccer game, they broadcast the Who Shot JR episode of Dallas after the game, and I can remember my parents and my sister and I being there for that. Um, and so watching the sport grow in the city with the with – the, Exhibition games that first started coming in with Club America and, and Mexico and Manchester City and AC Milan, those teams coming in, and then seeing, you know, what has happened with, with Arthur Blank and this team. It's been a lot of fun. Steve Goff from the Washington Post, a regular here on the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap, said Doug Robertson would be fantastic. He underestimated. You are outstanding, sir. Doug Robertson, he covers the Atlanta United and Major League Soccer. You can follow him on Twitter at Doug Robertson AJC on Facebook at Atlanta United News Now and subscribe to his podcast, Southern Fried Soccer. Doug, big time, man. Thanks for bringing home uh, really the sights and sounds of a glorious MLS Cup and a great situation there, Atlanta. I do appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) Doug Robertson, he was good. Hope you're good. The United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. We'll see you same time, same channel. Beginning next week, right through the convention, we will talk to featured presenters. We'll break down everything that's going to happen in Chicago. As always, for United Soccer Coaches, I'm Dean Linke. Thanks for listening. United Soccer Coaches provides programs and services that enhance, encourage, and contribute to the development and recognition of soccer coaches, their players, and the game we love. Join today. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join.